leadership in cybersecurity isn't just about understanding threats. It's about leading a team to navigate them with confidence. At CPF Coaching LLC, we specialize in taking your leadership skills to the next level. With over 15 years in the cybersecurity field, we empower professionals and startups to reach unprecedented heights. Imagine having a personalized coaching experience tailored to your unique career ambitions. From strategic planning to masterful pitch and interview preparations, we're here to guide you through every challenge. Join us for our unique value proposition workshops or dive into our vibrant learning community for continuous skill advancement. Don't just be a part of the industry. Redefine it. Visit cpfcoaching.com for more information. Discover the leader within. Contact CPF Coaching LLC today and schedule your strategic session. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Breaking into Cybersecurity. Today, we are CISO Thursdays, so we will have a CISO security leader talk about their journey and the things that we can do from their perspective in order to help improve the talent pipeline, security programs, things like that. But before we get to that, follow myself and Yash on LinkedIn. If you're joining us live there, um, share in the comments, questions that you may have, where you're viewing from, everything like that. And that way we can uh, see where our audience is coming from. For those of you on YouTube, hit subscribe and hit that notification button. That way the next time we're on, you can see that pop up. And for those of you listening on podcast, please share that with friends and family. Um, thank you very much. And yes, yeah, tell us. Um, did I pronounce that right? I, I know you shortened it. Um, yeah, right. t tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you got to security. Sure. Uh, and thanks, Chris, for having me on the show. And hello, everyone. So my background's uh, traditional, but had a non-traditional start to it. Um, I have an undergrad degree in electronics. And in my undergrad, I was only good at the courses which had some form of programming in it. I didn't do a lot of it, but that's where sort of I was drawn. And we had one crypto course towards the end of the program, and that's what got me hooked on. Until then, I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life and what was next. Uh, so once that happened, I started looking for masters uh, in cybersecurity it took me a while to figure that out, but then I came to the U.S. Uh, to Johns Hopkins on the East Coast for a master's in cybersecurity. Once I got there, uh, it was drinking from a fire hose kind of situation, a lot of new things. And one fortunate thing that happened was a few seniors of mine, they gave me this book called Web Application Hacker's Handbook and said, if you need to get a job, you need to know this book back and front, read it like 10 times. And that's what I did. Uh, so that book plus a wasp and all of those helped me get an internship and then a job as a uh, security consultant, um, 
I moved to the West Coast, did consulting for a while, and from then moved into Box, where I was doing application security, some red teaming, and it was a small team, so I could do a lot of things there. And I was fortunate enough to be able to learn from people uh, in the company who were a lot more experienced than I was. So I was there for about three, three and a half years, and then moved on to Twilio. Uh, Twilio, I had a great manager. I was there for four uh, plus years. Um, the company had an exponential growth, which led to an exponential growth in the security team. And I was fortunate to sort of hang on to it and grow with the company. And after that, I moved to Sendbird, which is my current uh, job where I run security, compliance, and IT. Well, we'll, we'll jump into that journey just a little bit. Um, you kind of sped through a lot of the interesting parts so quickly. Uh, but we have some comments from our guests. Um, Xavier is checking in from Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, Noel says, hi, everyone. Fortune says, hello. And then we have uh, Stephen, who's a very avid follower, checking in from San Diego. So uh, those of you keeping track of us live, send in your questions in the meantime. But the first question I have for you, Yash, so they gave you the hacker's handbook to web application testing, and um, you read it back to front. Now, let me ask you something, and this is kind of one of those um, interesting questions in cybersecurity. Do you have to be able to code or to break code to be in cybersecurity? Not necessarily. And this is something that I have gone back and forth and my views have changed or evolved over time. Uh, for the first few years of my career, I, I could write code, but very minimal. And I wasn't big on coding. And I was trying to convince myself that, hey, you don't need to know how to code. You're a pen tester. You have a job. You're in security. And that happened for a while. And as things changed, what I realized was there will be instances where you can do stuff manually or you want to automate it. Uh, and that's when coding comes in useful. And I think I'll tie this to say there are different pillars within security, right? You could do incident response, application security, cloud security, whatever. You don't need to be able to code for all of those um, pillars or to be working in all of those. Some of them knowing coding would be really helpful. Uh, for example, if you're an application security engineer, you should know how to code, you should know how to read code. But if you're doing cloud security, then you need to know how AWS works. You may need to write scripts to automate things, but you can get by without coding. And if you're a SOC analyst or if you're a GRC, you don't really need coding. So I guess it depends on what you want to do and what your style of uh, doing things is. So it, it sounds like you don't do a lot of code, but you are a web app pen tester. Um, that, that, that sounds like uh, an oxymoron to me, but may, maybe I don't understand the role well enough. Can you describe the role for those that might be interested in it? Sure, totally. Uh, my first job out of college was that of a application pen tester. Uh, and I was a consultant with a firm here in uh, the West Coast. And what uh, Pentester as a consultant means is different clients of the company engage your firm saying, hey, can you come in for two weeks, three weeks? We have a new application that we want to get uh, security tested. 
come in, break it, do what you can, give us a report. So typical engagements would be about one to three weeks long. It could be a single person engagement or could be a couple of them. Usually it's around two or three, that's the sweet spot. All of you go in, and this was pre-COVID, so we would actually go to the location of the client. Uh, they would give you an application, walk you through, give you test accounts, and then you for the next two or three weeks would uh, try and hack into the application, find vulnerabilities, and then write a nice, beautiful report that says, here is everything we found. Here's how we recommend fixing it. And here's why this is bad or this is not bad or how critical it is. Then you give the report to your client, give them a little bit to go through it. And then you have sort of a um, discussion with them. And they it's kind of a back and forth that they say, okay, this is a bug, but we have these compensating controls, which we didn't enable for you because it was on the test environment. So after all that that is done, the report's finalized, and then you move on to your next consulting engagement. Okay, okay. Yeah, we have um, some, some comments along with that. Um, learning, learning code definitely helps at least you to be able to read yes. code um, from Stephen. And then Xavier says, my thoughts, better you read code, the better you can assess it. And then he follows on by, then you learn to break it. <laughs> I could not agree more. So as you, um, as you grew in your career and you moved on from, from web app pen testing to Box, which is a, a larger company, and you were doing, doing pen testing there, how did your, your career evolve? Like, was it a hard switch over or was it just easy to get the roles at the time? Um, it was, it wasn't particularly hard to get the roles, but it was definitely, uh, it definitely had a change in mindset to be able to prepare for interviews because it wasn't just pen testing, right? When you join a product company, um, you're doing a lot more than that. Breaking applications is one part of it, but then trying to fix it, that's harder because there's so many constraints that you don't know as an outsider or a consultant. But once you get into the company, the developer or the engineering teams could say, you're right, but we can do this for X, Y, and Z reasons. Then you have to come up with alternate solutions, work with them to find something that works. So all of that architecting and blueprinting, that's a very interesting but challenging process. So preparing for the, an interview to get into a company like that, I had to kind of uh, broaden my scope a little bit from just application pen testing to some mobile apps, some infrastructure, some working with engineering things and all of uh, those items. But uh, the basics that you need uh, would already be there with you as a consultant. Interesting, interesting. Um, as you as you grew in your career, it, it, my impression is that you're on the highly technical side. Um, how did you groom those skills if you went in, when you went into people management to kind of do that pivot or were you allowed to stay as an individual contributor in the manager and director type roles and you didn't have to people manage just yet? Uh, I did people manage. So I do manage a lot of people and right now I don't do technical work and that's something I have to pull myself back from. Uh, in this instance, I was able to ease into it because 
when I became a manager, I didn't have a big team to manage. I had to hire and build up a team. So what that gives you is that slow ability to sort of uh, start pivoting where you say, okay, I'm going from being 100% technical to 60% technical, 40% people management. And then eventually as the team grows, it becomes 60, 40, 80, 20, 90, 10. Then at some point you have to make that decision of like, okay, now my team needs me to do these other things. I need to stop looking at code. I need to stop writing code and stop being uh, completely hands-on technical. Was that hard for you? It is still hard. <laughs> it is still hard. So it's still it's still something that uh, you're challenged with. Um, when a, we, we have a question from the audience. What advice would you give to a person transitioning from clinical lab sciences where they're doing a master's in cybersecurity and they just passed their security plus, um, but they feel like they're not getting the roles and they're getting rejections. Um, how, how would you advise them? Um, one thing I would advise is to try and apply to consulting firms. Um, they are usually more open to taking fresh grads uh, or fresh into the role kind of people and then helping them become a good engineer slash consultant. So that's one thing I would suggest trying if you haven't. And since you have a clinical uh, background, maybe sort of mixing those two up and looking at healthcare tech companies with a cybersecurity role open might also be something that gives you an edge over other folks applying to the same role. That's a great point. And there's many of those uh, consulting companies that have a medical division that focus mm -hmm. solely on uh, on those types of individuals a um, couple more comments hey everyone greetings coming in from the uk then we have um samuel from woodbridge and we have julie chapman who was just recently on uh, mentioning to for uh, fortune that she was in clinical sciences before the navy um so Let's move on to the next step of your career. So now you're you're leading a full full grown program for for an organization. How do you come in and assess as a new leader what's needed in a security program, and how do you build out the team for that? So at Sandbird, when I came in, there was a small team present. Um, so to your first question, how do you assess what's needed? Uh, I think listening is an important part of it. So the first couple of months I spent talking to a lot of people, talking to the CTO, uh, engineering leaders, like my team, and then sort of just seeing what was done, why it was done, uh, what we need to do. And one thing that I would point out here is don't get to conclusions too soon. You may see a decision and say, okay, this is not the right decision. But if you look at the context in which the decision was made, um, you may have a different opinion then. So uh, I guess listening and sort of learning from people who have been there, getting all of that institutional knowledge of the why and the what uh, from the last couple of years um, is the first and most important step because it also uh, builds credibility where people then realize that, okay, this is not somebody who's just coming in and judging what we do. He's here to help us uh, and make us make the company better. Once you do that, then taking sort of a risk-based approach of what needs to be done next, because uh, the chances are you'll see a gazillion things that need to be done. 
and trying to tackle all of them will burn you out, your team out, and everybody will be pissed at you. So um, risk ranking and seeing what's important to the company versus what may seem important uh, just by the definition of it, uh, that's step number two. And making that list of um, what's next in the next 12, 18 months and then getting resources for it, um, being uh, driven by your risk decisions would sort of help you fuel that growth and achieve those uh, targets. Okay. So as you, as you so you have a small team, um, and potentially are going to grow the team. How do you create your own pipeline for uh, future future roles as well as prime the market to attract future candidates to your organization? That seems to be a hot topic today or in these days, right? Hiring. Uh, one thing that I've learned is. When you're talking to people for one role, you probably look at 100 candidates before you hire a couple. Um, what I usually try and do is keep the candidate experience as smooth and as good as possible. So even if things don't work out today, they don't leave uh, the interview scenario feeling bad or feeling low, but they go out saying, okay, this didn't work out, but it's a good company. I like the team, maybe it'll work out in the future. So one thing that, and again, this is not my idea, I've stolen it from somewhere, is uh, when a candidate goes through the on-site interview loop or the Zoom on-site interview loop and doesn't make it, then through the recruiter, I offer a 15, 30 minute phone call to sort of walk through why the selection didn't happen and what uh, I can help them with to sort of steer them in the right direction. I think that has uh, helped uh, both the candidate to sort of uh, change their uh, perspectives and tactics, tactics for interviews, but also it kind of um, helps keep those connections open because that may work out later. Wow, that, that's an amazing offer to, I, I've, I've seen, hey, it didn't work out for this reason, but to offer another 15 minutes of your time, that, that's very generous of you. Um, how has that been working out? Like, have you liked the outcome? Have they mentioned they liked the outcome? Um, I've had a few candidates take me up on the offer and they were pretty appreciative. It kind of connects a bond where they're like, look, nobody has done this with us before. We really appreciate it because, and I've been in this boat too, where you keep interviewing, you keep getting rejects and you don't really know why. And all it takes is like one or two people to tell you the why. Uh, and you probably just had that, in you, right? You had the knowledge, you had the know-how, you just needed to pivot and look at a question or look at a scenario a little different. Brooklyn29 from YouTube is saying, we need more people like you, Yash. Um, Thank so, you. Absolutely. How's, so you mentioned you, you interview up to 100 candidates. Um, how do you ensure that they, they all get that follow-through that whether they were or were not selected, that they received that? Because I think oftentimes, like you mentioned, that's the challenge you've been in in that loop. Um, how, how do you do that? Yeah, uh, so I think I wasn't clear. We don't, I don't interview 100 people, but it's usually, the, uh, at least we get 100 people's resume for one particular role uh, before you okay. fill it. So kind of goes 100 resumes, less than 50% uh, phone interviews, and then maybe, 15 to 25% make it to the on-sites. 
Uh, and how do you go through that um, refinement process? Um, so I usually, so I usually work with the recruiting team to sort of go through the resumes, and it's sort of like a tag team kind of thing where we work together. Uh, once we go through the resume and feel it's a fit, then there's a technical phone screen next, and then that's followed by a series of Zoom onsites. And again, this is all of this starts off with the uh, uh, recruiter phone screen in yeah. the first place. So, well, you, you mentioned that tag team relationship between mm -hmm. you and the recruiter. I, I think it goes back to using before, like creating that job description. Um, mm -hmm. how, how do you how do you work with them to create that job description to be more than just a, a bunch of things that might happen um, at the job site? Yep. And yeah, before we get into that, I think having a good relation with your recruiter is the first and foremost thing that you need to do in hiring. And recruiters are probably underrated and underappreciated for the effort that they put in. Um, but anyways, going to your question, um, the job description, and I've seen a lot of comments or blogs about this of how they have very high expectations for a entry-level role. So um, I think that's the starting point, right? Like, is your job description realistic? Are you saying I want a P2 with 10 years experience? And I've had recruiters, fortunately, who keep me honest. And I say, when I put in something which is on my wish list, they're like, hey, is this realistic? Or do you want to move this from required to good to have? So what we do is have multiple sections where this is where one section is like, this is absolutely what we need for the role. The other section is more like, it's good to have this, but you don't really need it for the role. Uh, and then trying to be very realistic about what's needed and what's not needed, because everybody would like people with a lot of experience, knowing a lot of technologies, knowing Kubernetes, containers, AWS. But uh, I think it's being honest with yourself of, do you really need those? Do you really need those in the first six to 12 months of the job? Or do you, can you use the first six to 12 months to teach them that so that they can use it in the next phase of the job? Wow. I, I wow. <laughs> I, I love that approach because I think there's often bad habits that can come from um, experience. And if it, you mentioned entry level, I, I wasn't going to go go there just yet, but um, <laughs> being able to, to teach them something that is teachable versus looking for something that is more inherent within a candidate. Um, that, that's a great approach. And I love that the recruiters are keeping you honest and going, do you really need that? Um, <laughs> so now that you have, um, we'll start with entry level, someone, someone in your role, how do you create that pipeline to, to build them up within your organization and allow them to understand what are the expectations needed to go from A to B to Z? Um, yeah, so before I hire somebody entry level or new to the job type of people, I make sure that I have somebody senior within the team who has the bandwidth to sort of help this person grow. Because the worst thing you could do is hire somebody to the role and not have somebody to mentor them and say, you're on your own because they're going to fail in that role. So once we have determined that, we're, okay, this person is going to mentor the new 
grad or new person coming in as an entry-level engineer. Uh, then it's setting expectations because the other thing that happens is somebody gets the role and they are unsure of why they got the role and they're kind of scared. So the other thing that I've been trying to do and I haven't been really good at it is once I hire somebody, I tell them why I hired them. Uh, to boost their self-confidence and to sort of tell them that they are worth a lot and they just don't know it yet. So, and that sets the base that tells them what they know, what we value as a company. And then it's the expectations that you need to set saying, this is where you are. This is the level you're at. This is what you're expected to do. And this is what you need to do to grow. And then there are two things that happen from there, right? One, you need to have a job leveling matrix, which basically tells them, very clearly what they need to do to progress. Because if you don't have it, it's kind of unclear. They're like, okay, I'm working, I'm doing projects. I don't really know what's next. So once that's in place, then sort of having a conversation with the person of like where they're interested and what they want to do to sort of be able to create a roadmap that's both beneficial to the company and to the individual. Because you can't take a person who's interested in GRC and make them look at syslogs. That's not going to go anywhere. And once you have the alignment of interests, then you kind of uh, have regular check-ins and then make sure that they're growing as well as delivering uh, to the company. Okay. So they've now gone from entry level to mid or senior over a couple of years. How do you do you how do you fill either a senior spot that's left. Um, how, how do you fill that spot now? Do you what, what's your approach? Outside first, inside first. Like, what's your approach when looking for that that spot up top that might have gone missing? Uh, I am a big proponent of promoting from within because that's how I grew uh, within Twilio and throughout the career as well is by being promoted. So that's what I lean towards. Um, if a candidate can do at least 70% of what's needed for the next role, and the other 30% is something that's coachable versus that's inherently required, then it's a clear decision of like, okay, let's move the person, let's set the expectation. Let's And again, if it's a IC versus manager role, then it's a bigger decision because the person being promoted needs to want to become a manager. Um, so that's the other thing that I look at is, is the person really interested in this role or are they just taking it for the growth opportunity and not because they like what they would be doing then. But if all of these are a match, then I would promote internally. Okay. And you, you kind of mentioned that, that division between IC and manager. So you have someone they're potentially in a senior level role, where do they grow next if they don't want to become a, a people manager? So this is something that I wish I had known a lot sooner because in my head uh, 10 years ago, if you didn't become a manager, you wouldn't grow is the mindset that I had. And I found that relatively quickly that that's not true. In the IC path, you can go from like entry level, senior principal to an architect. So you can keep growing in the IC level and become an architect and have a company-wide and large scale impact without ever touching the management track. Wow, and yeah, you're right. I, I do think this is not often shared about. And that's why 
when I was asking like about your development roadmap, do you then create two paths, one for the people manager, one for the ICs? Yep. So what uh, I typically do, and again, this is something I've stolen from a previous manager, is have a two-year roadmap for each person on the team that says, this is where you're today. What things do you want to work on? What do you want to learn? And this is where we should go in the next two years. So we break it down by quarter and say, okay, Q1 of this year, this is what you're going to do. Q2 of this year, this is what you're going to do. And just have those project breakdown because that then gives the person the confidence that they have a roadmap of uh, clearly documented growth that they can achieve in the next one or two years. Oh, so you're even creating those those growth milestones for them because oftentimes I've seen that um, managers expect you to to know where you have to grow and they'll they'll judge you on on competencies and and skills at the end of the year, but they never set where where that growth is supposed to go and you're supposed to ex expect it. Uh, I take a different approach. I usually sit down with the candidate. I, well, I give them a heads up saying, think about what you want to do and then have a conversation, uh, a lengthy conversation uh, usually of where they are, what they want to do and why they want to do that. And I think the why for me is important because again, going back to our conversation about IC versus management, a lot of times I've seen people saying, I want to do this because I think that's the only way to grow. So kind of going back and forth, uh, that helps because then everyone realizes that I can do what I really like to do and I enjoy doing and still grow in that domain. Absolutely. Um, we have a great comment from Julie. People management isn't for everyone. The individual contributor uh, track is A-OK. -okay. During my career journey, it was possible to go from one to the next and back again. And I've seen that myself. I've been both an individual contributor as well as a, a people manager. And Julie, Julie goes on to say, Yash is dropping knowledge. <laughs> Thank you. So from, from here, you, you've created your program, you've created your people. Um, how do you attract people outside to your organization or to you as a brand and make them aware that these are potential roles that are happening or to follow your organization or even to younger folks like mm -hmm. cybersecurity is something that's it, that's interesting and you should look into it. There are a couple of approaches I've taken which have worked in the past. One is if your team is happy and they're satisfied with the growth that you're offering them and what the work that they're doing. They have friends who are also potentially in cybersecurity and word of mouth is probably the easiest way to attract talent. If your team's happy, they talk about it and everybody wants to be in that team. So that's uh, one easy way to do it. The other is sort of contributing back to the community and it has sort of two benefits, right? Uh, I've used a lot of open source tools in the past and we still do. So contributing back to the community is something big on my list. And I almost force people on my team to either write blogs, open source tools, or give talks. And I usually put that into their uh, performance management for the year saying, okay, do you want to write a blog or talk or what do you want to do, right? But it goes in there. 
And again, that's a two-pronged approach where one, it helps build the individual's brand as a person because they're not going to work for you forever, right? And I also feel it's my job to get them ready for when they want to switch to another company or something else. So this builds their brand. Plus, as you have a big public presence for your team and the work they do, uh, that again attracts talent because people use your open source tool and be like, oh, this team's doing great stuff. Maybe I should go check out what they're doing. So combining both of those, um, it gets relatively easier. I don't want to say easy hiring, but uh, that's one way where going into an interview, you don't have to explain what your team does. Wow, I, I love that. And Julie says she loves that too. Um, I, I love specifically that you acknowledge that someone will not be with you forever and that you're creating that succession plan for them that they will eventually need to go somewhere somewhere else um, and do something else. And you're preparing them for that. Yep. And there's only one condition that I put in front of everyone on the team, that they're open to interview, but if they interview, they better get the job. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so um, let's kind of go back to to an industry-wide approach. Um, what are some of the things that we can do to improve the attractiveness of the cybersecurity industry to diverse groups, um, younger generations? Because I, I, I think... Um, many overlook how important cybersecurity is to this connected world. Yeah, I think the importance of security in the connected world is growing at a much faster pace than people wanting to get in. So making the barrier to entry easier um, by sort of hiring uh, with the expectation that we will teach you on the job is something that we've all been talking for a while, but it's difficult, right? Because as an organization, when you hire people, you're expected to deliver. But in the first six months, it takes time away from an engineer. Plus, you don't get the output from the new hire that you had. So you're technically on a net negative uh, zone. So setting those expectations with the organization that hiring security is difficult and it's going to take time, it's going to take resources, and this is what we need to do. Uh, versus saying, okay, we need to throw more money at this. It's not a throw more money at this problem. It's more, we need to get people, train them up, um, get people with the right attitude that will fit into the team and then train them up and put them on a career path that they like. So they actually work with you uh, to sort of grow into what they want to be. And that kind of pivots, in, that kind of helps me pivot into the importance of um, job satisfaction because sure, once you're in security, the next thing is like, are you growing? Do you, are you able to do what you want to do? And it also goes into another aspect of security where a lot of times getting security buy-in from the engineering teams from the company is hard. And that in turn frustrates the engineers because they really want to do a lot of things but they don't have the buy-in, they don't have the budget. So I think it's a delicate balance between all of these where there is a barrier to entry, but once you get somebody in, it's not that easy to keep them satisfied because there are a lot of other uh, factors that uh, affect how we can do work. So 
I want to tackle you. You mentioned a couple amazing things there that, that I, I want to break apart. The first one is there's a net negative period. So what could we do, um, whether it's high schools, colleges, um, boot camps, what could we do to work with the community to help them create a curriculum or a training or something that uh, minimizes or lessens that net negative period um, so that it's more a company onboarding than a training onboarding? I think having sort of basic cybersecurity 101 courses in community colleges and sort of high schools, and they don't have to go super in-depth technically, right? But just creating that mindset of uh, how the internet works, why it's not secure, and why we need more people to help secure it. That just lights fire under people of like, okay, this is interesting. I want to go secure the digital world. I think that could be a good starting point of where you just, you don't teach people stuff. You just make them interested in it. And in today's world, if somebody's interested in doing something, there are a lot of resources for them to pick up. So you mentioned starting that in high school or in college or maybe middle school? Sure. <laughs> No, because I, I did, um, what, two, no, three years ago now because of mm -hmm. the pandemic, um, I, I did a half hour at my son's school and he was in elementary school and we we kind of talked about like the different things to look out for as a, uh, at the time, five-year-old on the internet and mm -hmm. how to be safe and how to, how to protect yourself and mm -hmm. don't like be cautious of who who's talking to you at that age um so, yep. so i think like start starting as young as possible is de definitely important um yep totally uh, once you start at that level i think it's also important to keep the continuity going because you can't just start when you're really young and then not have a not have another follow-up session. So it needs to be like a path that goes from like what's appropriate at a age level. So you talk about that. And then as kids grow older, like uh, more appropriate content for them, if that's available, I think that will keep that enthusiasm alive throughout their journey. So, so what can companies do to, to help influence the, the, the curriculum or even individuals in the company work with their local school districts to do a session like this? I think what you did is absolutely great. And if we can encourage all the parents in cybersecurity to take some time out, uh, go to the schools of their kids or schools in their community and sort of talk to the kids for maybe 30 minutes, 60 minutes every six months. I don't know. I think that'll be a lot of information. And then companies can also help their um, security team members do that, right? Today, a lot of companies have global service days where you can go donate your time. So if you can integrate that into an activity where you go talk to kids about security, it, that'll make it easier for people like us to go do that. Yeah, and I, I think even for those that are just coming into the industry, they're many steps ahead of someone mm -hmm in middle school and elementary school and might be more, might be able to influence them more 
than someone that looks like their parents that they don't want to listen to. <laughs> that is true. Um, let, let's pivot back. So the other thing that you mentioned is um, keeping, so essentially retaining the talent that you got. Um, you, you put in a lot of effort to, to hire them, to bring them on, to onboard them. Now what can we do to keep them and keep their attention? Um, you, you mentioned there, there's potential challenge around them wanting to do a lot, but not get the business buy-in. Um, how, how can we get over that? Or what are some of the challenges there? I think the ground reality is the security teams of the world will never get everything that they want. There's going to be a balance of what you get versus what you're denied in terms of resources. So as a leader, if you can create a roadmap with the available resources, which uh, paints the hope of a future where the team has made a difference and then enable individuals on the team to make that difference with the resources available. That helps the team members have the satisfaction of like, okay, in the last 12 months, this is the change that I've made. Versus a feeling that says in the last 12 months, I've been waiting for resources there's a stark difference. And I know I'm oversimplifying things a little bit here, but if you're able to do that and keep people motivated, uh, that's how in my book retentions would work much better. Wow, yeah. And have you ever, I know this was one of the things that I did as an IT uh, manager is that I sat with the business, I spoke with them on a regular basis. have have the engineers ever went out on the other side of what you're doing to see how the users are interacting with the products and potentially how they can make it more efficient? So in previous companies, I've had uh, bigger security champions programs where uh, security engineers work really closely with uh, the engineering teams of the company to sort of make sure how they're using our tools is sort of uh, streamlined and things like that. The other thing that I do is all the security guidelines that we give to the rest of the company, I first make my team follow it. So if we say this is a CI CD pipeline and this is where we have blocking changes, as an example, we put those controls on our pipeline first and then we use it. And if you're like, okay, this is reasonable, then we propagate it to the rest of the team or rest of the company. Ah, very interesting. Uh, eat your own dog food kind of thing. Yep. <laughs> um, wow. So we've we've gotten to the. Do you think that's the only thing that that that's a challenge when it comes to retention? Like, what are some of the other areas that that might be a challenge for retention of engineers or security individuals that like to? Uh, be continuously exploring? So, yeah, so the continuously exploring part, right? Like as engineers with the hacker mindset, we always want to tinker with new stuff. We don't want to be doing what's exactly needed for the business 100% of our time. So the other thing I have done in the past is say, okay, 80% of your time, you're doing your day-to-day activities, right? Could be champions working with engineers, building tools, but then the 20% is like your research time. 
because we always say we need to up level as security engineers, we need to learn new things, but we need we also need to give uh, the engineers time to do time and resources to do that. Uh, I don't think it's fair for us to say, hey, I need you to learn AWS, but I'm not going to give you time in your working day to do it. You have to go figure it out after hours. Uh, that's not fair. So uh, what I've done in the past is said, okay, 20% is research time. The only constraint there is you can research on anything that's security related. Don't come to me and say, I want to learn music in my 20% research time, right? So anything that's security, you can explore if it needs a uh, budget to buy tools or equipment, we can do that too. So career growth, progression, learning new things. So that keeps uh, people happy. And then there's, of course, the compensation part of it, which again is not security specific, but a tech industry uh, wide issue where compensation needs to be competitive. It doesn't need to be highest of what everyone's paying, but it needs to be competitive enough so that the individuals don't feel that they're being left out or they're, pe they're being paid way less than what the industry standard is. Wow, definitely, definitely love that. Um, any final like words or wisdom that you would give someone that is potentially looking to follow in your, in your career path? Yeah, uh, getting into cybersecurity is fun, challenging, and scary at the same time. Uh, work hard, find a mentor, learn as much from them as you can, and I can guarantee you that you will succeed. Guarantee? Oh, wow. We're, we're <laughs> going to put this down in, in, in writing now. <laughs> well, Yash, uh, I truly appreciate your time. Um, we've had lots of comments, and you've, you've kind of touched on them all. So I really appreciate it. And for those of you on LinkedIn, follow myself, follow Yash. Thank you very much for joining us live today. For those of you on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and that notification button. And for those of you on podcast, after the fact, uh, give us a, a 10 star rating wherever you wherever you can, um, or at least five, and share it with as many friends and family. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. Yash, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone. In the rapidly evolving world of cybersecurity, your business needs a guide that's as dynamic as the threats you face. CPF Coaching LLC delivers unparalleled expertise to elevate your cybersecurity startup or business with a decade and a half of specialized experience. We're not just advisors. We're your strategic partners in growth and risk mitigation. Our tailored advisory services range from immediate hourly guidance to comprehensive three- or six-month packages, all supported with encrypted messaging for real-time assistance. For more information, cpfcoaching.com is your destination. Forge a path to success and distinction in the cybersecurity landscape. Connect with CPF Coaching LLC today and secure your business's future.